Hello, welcome to the second Sunday reading series. My name is Sean Killingsworth. I'm the curator and host of this series. I'm really glad that you can all join us today. We've got some amazing poets. I'm super excited for this reading. So our poets today are Shannon Wolf, uh, Addie Sai, and Malvika Jolly. Um, I am so grateful to these fine poets for sharing their work with us. I've, I've just, uh, I got a little crazy making flyers and um, it's just, it's been an exciting little uh, prelude for me. So um, if everybody could take a moment to silence your cell phones and please mute yourself in case you haven't already, just so that no extraneous noises filter in, that would be wonderful. And I'd like to get started. So our first poet up to the mic is Shannon Wolf. She's a British writer and teacher currently living in Denver, Colorado. She received a joint MA, MFA in poetry at McNeese State University and also has degrees from Lancaster University and the University of Chichester. So she is far more educated than I am. She's also the co-curator of the Poets in Pajamas reading series. Her poetry, short fiction, and nonfiction, which can also be found under the name Shannon Bushby, have appeared in Bending Genres, The Forge, No Contact Mag, and Had, among others. And you can find her on social media at Hello Shan Wolf. So Shannon, you are up. Thank you so much. Um, first of all, the four degrees are useless because they're in English. So, you know, take that as you will. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. I'm so thrilled to be here with you guys. Um, and shout out to uh, my husband who is here, who, sorry, honey, is laying in bed from a vasectomy upstairs. Um, so <laughs> shout out to you, babe, for coming along. Um, <laughs> I am going to read some poems today. I think I'm going to read about eight poems. Um, and then I will let the other wonderful poets here take over from there. Um, so first, I'm going to start with uh, kind of, I range from angry to really sad in my poems. I don't really go anywhere else. Um, so first one I would say is angry. Um, and it starts kind of in a setting of I was moving house with my husband. I was sat on a lawn chair in my driveway and I was looking around the neighborhood. So this is what I saw. White picket fence, Wedgwood, Seattle. Me, a woman in sweats, surveying the neighborhood from my driveway. A man jogging a man striding, his wife 10 paces behind, groceries paper bagged in her arms like a child, a man leaf blowing, cheeks ruddy with afternoon liquor, a man dousing the lawn with a hose looped loosely around his spraying arm, a man in a Chevy, a man slow breaks, beside the trailer in the spaces outside my house, looks up at it, looks over at me and back again, his mouth a snaking line. A man in a Honda, a man in a Pontiac, a man who pauses, sees me alone, his body gunning toward me, his mouth a knife, but turning to a grimace smile over my head, a nod, a going on his way, a man, my husband, opening the garden gate, hammer and gloves in hand. Um, so yeah, a little bit angry little tip of the iceberg there um and now I will read one that's less angry a little bit more romantic um and uh if you follow me on Instagram as uh, my friend Rachel who was here does um I uh posted earlier saying if you would like to see me read a poem about my husband's butt come along so here it is uh this is Ode to My Husband's Ass Sweet swooning slopes like long drives on Sundays. It makes me want to tie my hair up in a silk scarf and put the roof down, apply lotion to the soft skin around my eyes and take a sip from a warm flat soda. 
abandoned in the car cup holder for a weekend of hammocks and wrists laying lazy in the shallow bed of the river. When I was 11 or 12, we would paddle shin deep in the river that bisected Water Lakes Road. The others would grow tired, climb back up to the footpath, and I would remain trespassing in the dark hollow where the tepid light could not pervade the thicket of trees. And I could see myself in the water, big green eyes and cracked elbows. Now you look back at me, your fingers dipped in the pages of a book, your mind somewhere else. My hand smooths a path from the small of your back to the gully of your thighs. It feels like summer, I say. I want to swim. Uh, so, sorry, honey, I know I'm embarrassing you. Uh, <laughs> absolutely sick of me this week, I'm sure. I've been all up in his business. Um, so next, I just want to read something that is technically a flash fiction, but I feel like flash fiction, prose poetry, who are we to say? What is what? Um, so this is coming out in Heavy Feather, which I'm really excited about. Um, so this is Taking It. You are standing in your father's living room and the ceiling is in pieces upon the floor, sopping wet pieces that appear as if they would come apart in your hands like sea foam. You are looking up at the hole, bath shaped and jagged, and your father is in the kitchen gathering rags and buckets. Your scalp pinches at the roots from where he twined his knuckles in the nest of your ponytail and yanked. Your scalp is pink with embarrassment. You left the bath running while you were making him a cup of tea. Here, take this, he says now, and hands you the navy blue tea towels that usually hang neatly from the handle of the oven. Last week, it was your birthday and he had bought you black paint and helped you stencil song lyrics on your bedroom wall. Today, the back of your neck itches from where his elbow connected with it, itches like an allergy or a bad habit. You do not scratch it. You kneel on the floor and pile tea towels until the water is seeping through them. You are really looking forward to having a bath. Here, take this, your father says, and he is smiling and handing you a dry dressing gown. Yours has soaked through. Thank you, you hear yourself saying, you're the best, Dad. Above both your heads, the bath mat, sodden and weighty, falls onto the couch, bringing more plaster with it. The wet slap on the leather seat sticks to you like syrup. So connecting with that, because we love an angry dad uh, piece of work, um, I have a poem that kind of spans a great massive time. So I think it kind of starts in a place of, you know, being a young girl at university, trying to figure things out on my own and making my own way in the world. Um, and it comes all the way up to like recent years where I had to make some difficult decisions about, you know, who, which family members I want to keep in my life and all of that sort of stuff. So this is this. Um, and it's not that you can see, it's a high bun. So it is, you know, a prose poem followed by a little haiku at the end, if you can hopefully hear that in there. Um, okay. Tale as old as time. In this one, the princess is not locked away in a tower or a dungeon, not locked in at all, but is perhaps three hours away by car in a dorm room or eight hours away by plane in a two bedroom apartment with a man that the beast has only met once. Across the land, the beast still wields his grip like a monarchy unyielding even as it dies out. The beast calls the princess and if she does not pick up, the beast brandishes his anger like a gauntlet around her bared throat. When the princess does pick up, 
she speaks too much or too loudly or about something the beast knows nothing about. And so as if it was foretold, the beast, the beast wounds her, snide and unrelenting until she is silent, until she picks up but barely speaks, until she stops answering at all and tells tales about other dragons she must fight, other kingdoms she must traverse. After years of curses and broken blood oaths, when she has shorn her hair and abandoned her silks and satins, the princess tells the beast that his reign is over. He cannot call anymore. He has been slain by her beating, beating, unquiet heart. The beast roars like her voice will destroy him. The princess is disgusting. The princess will regret this. The princess will change her mind when she hears what the kingdom thinks of her. She does not cry. She does not run. She does not lay her new armor down. The townspeople warn, girl, he is the only beast that you'll ever have. Um, so there's that one, and I'm going to go straight into a sad poem, as promised. Um, so I'm going to do two sad poems, actually. Um, this first one is from my mom, um, who is definitely not listening. Um, I probably would really not understand what was going on in the poem anyway, but here we go. <laughs> um, this is I Can Forgive You. After my father tossed me around his flat like a rag doll, and I came home and threw the house phone down a flight of stairs, you sat at the dining table and waited for me to finish. Sometimes we danced around that dining table, not boogieing, but bad ballroom dancing, heads thrown back, it's all about your frame, crashing into chairs, singing to Stevie Wonder, or Lionel Richie, or George Michael, or Celine. At night, I would sit on the closed toilet seat and talk to you while you bathe in our tub. I had a child's cruelty when I would talk about your brick heavy breasts. You would say, Wait until you're my age. Yours will be just like mine. Our bathroom was always ice cold. At least once a week, I snuck into your closet for your wraparound sweaters or chunky boots. I can still smell that leather, eight or nine shells filled and double stacked. I think the last pictures of us I have are from that day in the snow. Me clutching two chocolate bars from the local shop. You in a winter jacket sticking out your tongue, cropped hair, ruffled, grinning like you knew me. I carry my weight in the same places as you, stomach and hips cracked thick with age, and my breasts, they need wire, just like you warned. I can't forget the ways that you hurt me, but I can forgive you enough to remember all this. So one sad poem, and then this one is much sadder. Um, I wanted to read this today because uh, Many of us in the poetry community and the lit community have recently lost a really good friend of ours, Gora. Um, and the day I heard it, I had to sit down and write something. I haven't really been writing a lot lately, but this one, you know, just came straight out. Um, so this is a poem for Gora. She ran No Contact Mag. She did amazing, amazing work. Um, and we have really lost someone amazing and important and just like the coolest person. So here is this one. And who wants a world like that, Gregora? We go on waking up every day, brewing our black coffee together, reclining at our breakfast bar, elbows sore, nauseous from the brazen fist of the sun, walking out the door, forgetting lunch. We go on coming home every night, sitting on our caved-in couches, rewatching the same teen dramas, touching our feet together as if in prayer, stretching the hours before sleep. Yes, the world goes on, 
and so do we, as if our hearts didn't stop today when you left us and went onward, as if our houses are still just fine, as though every door and window has not been ripped off its hinges. Somewhere in far off Virginia, the world became empty of you. Ooh, so that's the first time I've ever read that. That's lovely to, to do. Um, it was her service yesterday. So again, very much on my mind at the moment. Um, so let's get back to anger. <laughs> um, so back to an angry dad poem. Um, a really nice thing about this poem um, that I'm going to read now is uh, poems. Normally you put them out into the ether. Maybe a friend reads them who's already a poet too. Maybe, you know, your friend who isn't a poet reads it and says it was funny or something. Um, but this poem got me an apology from a family member um, who didn't understand what my relationship with someone had been and now had read this poem and realized what I had been going through. Um, and I had been in a place of, you know, it was a really hard time and a really lonely um, period. Um, so yeah, Poems are redemptive. Who knew? I did not. Um, <laughs> so this is a poem uh, written after an amazing poem by uh, Amy Nesquimitatil. Um, so this is called, Are All the Fathers in Your Poems Real? If by real, you mean as real as the stinging light still burning in an empty refrigerator, the pooling on a water-ranged table, the crumple of a toe against a desk's steel leg, then yes, every last page is true. Every sharp word, bark and bitch. Wait, I have made them all up, all of them. And when I say I'm fatherless, I mean my father was less. And so somewhere there is a room full of fathers, all of them. Can you imagine the number of beater cars, how many unearthed golf balls? Even now, my father is prepared to call me. One dials the phone, another commandeers the speaker, one screams into the abyss of the internet, and one sits at my grandmother's grave. One sleeps with his broken glasses on, another is preparing a dinner alone, and every single one of them wonders why I'm never coming home. All right, so that is my second to last poem, and my last one is going to be now, and it's the longest poem I've ever written, so it's a hundred line poem which sounds like a lot, and it probably was a lot. Um, it is also kind of a gross, weird poem, but it is about my love story with my husband. Um, so there are some, definitely some gross moments in there because that's just who we are as people. Um, and it's kind of about my journey to America and all that good stuff. So here we go, last one. And then I was American with him. Before my first date with my husband, I stood him up twice. Why he still came that Friday, honestly, I'll never know. I cried once a day about the distant idea that he might someday die. Believe me, I would tear out a lung, a liver, even all of my straight black eyelashes to have those wasted two days back. I would flood the British Isles to repeat the two days that followed with him in a Portland motel where the cashier mistook me for a prostitute and asked if we wanted the room by the hour. Its walls were the color of warm shit. Next door, the TikTok lounge played a movie production, yellow and flickering as we drank fudgesicles at 2 a.m. and I fell in love with him. He could read my mind, my words in his voice through the night, his fingertips on the apples of my cheeks. The first time he made love to me, the sweat from his glowing face fell on my body in the sultry dark. 
flicker rainfall in some far off arid land. Thornton unwraps his new robe in some hotel room in Nashville. Later today, after he drinks gin, whiskey, and brandy, we'll write our names inside a hardback book and leave it in the bar. And then I will be the one to fall down in the street. He will help me back into this bed and fall asleep, one quiet hand on my stomach as I bandage my concrete gray knee. Now though, he preens in plaid, playing model for my camera. It's his birthday. I tell him undress and to slide the robe on when his body is bare. He slinks back in to find me naked, no makeup, up on my still smooth knees. He undoes the belt, twirling it like a baton, and I hum some bad burlesque tune for him to strip to. His hips shake and I scream, honey, take it off. When he pins me on the bed, the whole hotel hears us laughing. The last time I had diarrhea and shit myself, perching on our living room couch, Thornton came to roost on the ledge of the tub, watching as I washed my soiled knickers by hand, kneading the fabric into China white soap blossoms the same way that he needs pizza dough on Friday night. He stumbled to our bedroom hand in hand like school kids to lay on the bed chortling about moon kittens, teddy bears and costume men climbing out of oil paintings. Clad in pajamas covered with elk, he tells me he is riled as if he has been radicalized until our giggles erupt in unison. A sacred language we molded together, photographs in cork albums, leftover arugula flowering right outside our front door and pink post-its on every wall. After seven months together, Thornton put a ring on my finger on a courthouse roof in Seattle. Once the judge said, kiss the bride, we both whispered, holy shit. And then I was American with him. He says oi and carbonate for me. I refuse to say aluminum aloud, but I do swap plasters for mandates. Our life is a purple pink sky. And in a month or two, we'll pack everything we own into boxes and we'll move to another city. There will be sprinklers on sidewalks, pastrami sandwiches at noon and Thornton smile on our front porch. These gentle days, I am forgetting England. All its gray bodies, tiny skies and muzzled silence. I flood the truck with radio, windows down, as I waltz us up the highway an unexpected ballerina, Thornton's hand squeezing my knee. Now I know why I had to come here. It was never this land calling over the sea. I knew he was waiting for me. And that's it. Thank you guys so much. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Shannon. I, it's so infrequent that you get to hear love poems. And it's just so uplifting and fun. So thank you for bringing them. Uh, see, I told you everybody, this was gonna be a good reading. So we're off to an excellent start. <laughs> okay, so our next poet is Addie Stai, a queer non-binary artist and writer of color. They teach creative writing at the College of William and Mary. Addie teaches in Goddard, Goddard or Goddard? Is it like Beckett? <laughs> Uh, Goddard. Goddard. Goddard, thank you. College's MFA program in interdisciplinary arts and Regis University's Mile High MFA program in creative writing. They earned an MFA uh, in creative writing from Warren Wilson College and a PhD in dance from Texas Women's University, another highly educated person here. Uh, she's the author of the queer Asian young adult novel, Dear Twin, and also Unwieldy Creatures, an adult queer biracial Asian retelling Frankenstein. 
They are the fiction co-editor and editor of Features and Reviews at Anomaly, staff writer at Spectrum South, and founding editor and editor-in-chief at Just Femme and Dandy, and the parent, the skin mother of a beautiful fur baby named Marshmallow, who I was kind of hoping would make an appearance today. <laughs> oh, I can introduce him really quick. Marshmallow, come here. Come here. Say hi. <gasps> this is Marshmallow. Baby. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Go sit down. Go sit down. Go All sit right. down. Okay. Thank no, you. <laughs> no riled it up a little, but it's okay. <laughs> sit down. Sit down. Okay. <laughs> All right. Super excited to be here. I don't actually get to read poems that often. So um <laughs> Marshy loves everyone. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start with three sort of trans non-binary takes on fairy tales. The first one um, is a take on the galoshes of fortune. Baby needs a new pair of boots. The fairy wanted those boots for themselves. They were of the most delectable green rubber, thicker than the air pie, far beyond the clouds in the dead of summer, even when fairies wore next to nothing. But they knew better than to try to sneak them away from the master of fairies. First things first, their wings could never carry such substantial boots without being noticed, and their spells simply weren't strong enough yet to cloak them behind a shield of invisibility or make them vanish just for a second or two. So they did it. Just as the master of fairies determined that anywhere of the boots would be placed in whatever time they desired, they spoke it into being that the boots would make the wearer miserable in whatever time they'd always hoped for. Every fairy knew that the minute a fairy spoke a prediction, it made it so. And every fairy also knew that such predictions never applied to them, but only to humankind. The fairy slept on a cloud and kept an eye on their beloved boots, cringing with displeasure at the man who took the boots deep into the mud, or shedding a tear when a boy roughed them up against rocks and cobblestone streets. When you found an object that makes you feel more like yourself than you ever thought possible, what a little time to wait. So the fairy waited and waited. They stared at themselves in their little mirror and house they'd built in the clouds and transformed the image in the mirror to match the one inside. The boots only began the image in their mind. Soon they saw deep red suspenders, chestnut trousers, an Oxford shirt the color of the sky they slept in. Their wings sparkled in longing and joy with such intensity that they fell asleep from the excitement. When they woke, the pair of green boots sat next to them on a cloud, which the fairy assumed was their imagination. But when they went to touch them, they could grab them with their hand. The boots were worn, hefty, sticky with life. How could it be? And then they heard behind them a most distinctive laugh that belonged to the one and only master of fairies. The fairy threw their head back. What? How? The master giggled again, their wings bouncing with self-satisfaction. Silly fairy, if only you told me how much you wanted them, I would have given them to you as soon as you asked. The master winked, but the fairy had no clue as they were too busy admiring their be beautiful new possessions now on their feet, which made them feel like always and also brand new. Okay, and this is um, a re sort of a retelling of um, Little Mermaid. Uh, the title borrows from a song, a song lyric um, from Marika Hackman. Deep sea baby, I follow you. You cannot tell them. You cannot tell your five divine sisters, each as perfectly beautiful as the one before. 
You cannot tell your grandmother whose heart would sink to the seafloor like a strange and unwanted anger. You cannot tell your father who has relied on you to be exactly as he has carved you to be, the image of his beloved who now resides in heaven. You cannot tell any of them that who you are in your heart is not who stands before them in their eyes. If only you could throw away your singing voice spun by the gold of angels, or so they say. If only you could throw away the curve etched into each half of each torso, its own wave. But you know more than most the insistence of the waves of nature. So instead you finger the shipwrecked, shipwrecked statue of that fair dark haired prince, not out of a desire for him, but out of a desire of him. Okay, yeah, yes, maybe also a desire for him. You imagine your voice like the belly of a conch shell, your wavy middle like the straight line of the horizon, your hair the swollen bubble a human exhales to live. One day you draw your fantasy in the sand, then wipe it away with your tail, just long enough to feel it become real. At the peak of longing, there she is, the one you should not trust, but the only one who can grant you the desire that burns in your chest like a bright orange fire that refuses to sink. She promises you everything you could ever want, a voice dark and deep as the underground, a face chiseled like stone, thighs as thick as the tree trunks above, a broad chest and a torso as straight as a window pane, a neck free of the long hair that so many of your kind long for. But you know the story. Each spell comes with a price. She will give you even your prince, and as it so happens, your prince will desire you in equal measure, but you will have no sex from which to enact your longing. Between your legs will be an emptiness. But who cares about that when you get to return to who you were always meant to be? You drink the vile potion. Around your neck, you wear a simple fish's tail pendant. Your new love fingers it from time to time, which sends a strange chill up your spine, both from des a desire and a memory that tingles to hold not always in a good way. Air is delicious above ground between kisses. Your prince knows your story and you both make do with the constraints. You keep the pendant as a reminder of your past life, your family, all you gave up, all you left behind in order to become. Okay, I think the this next one, the fairy tale will be obvious. Um, the title comes from a David Bowie song, put on your red shoes and dance the blues. Whatever you knew of the name you believe is mine, forget it at once. Instead, consider a name that is dandy and pristine, like Jonah or Milo, maybe even Theodore. I'd long been abandoned by both my parents for so long, I couldn't sketch portraits of them, even if you were to give me all the money in the world. I had no choice but to make my way through the harsh world, but by sharing with rats the food tossed in dumpsters and on the streets. I didn't mind. They were pleasant enough company if you didn't treat them as cursed creatures. Shoes were almost never abandoned, and so my bare feet became accustomed to nicks and barbs of a particularly prickly plant or the sharp edge of a rock. My hair draped against my back, thick and hard as the ragged dress I found to protect my skin from the elements. By the time she came for me, I had built a perfect enough routine to suit me just fine. I knew the best place to hide out from the jailers, the perfect view to watch the musicians and dancers on the streets, how I longed to join them. But without shoes and a suitable look, who would have me? Until she came. What could I say? I had no position to refuse her charity. I knew that the way to a decent meal and a warm bath was obedience, and so obey I did. With clean skin, I held my new caregiver's hand to lead her out of the carriage like a proper valet. I kept my new room clean and stayed out of trouble. I was never one for trouble anyway. 
She gifted me with literacy and new shoes made of silk, the finest gowns that I would have burned all at once if I could have traded them for a suit jacket adorned with brass buttons, trousers to match, and most of all, a pair of men's shoes with laces and a short heel. One day, she left me at the finest cobbler in the town while she walked down the street to buy food for our supper, accompanied by a friend of hers. Her eyes were losing their ability to discern details, but she wanted my shoes to sparkle for a wedding we were to attend in a few days. Resting behind the cobbler's head with the, was, were the most beautiful pair of shoes I'd ever seen in my life. Men's shoes made of the finest red leather, the sunlight glinting against the red as though it were made of diamonds. The sweet old man tried to get my attention three times while I descended into my fantasy of the red shoes. Once he realized that no shoes would be a match for my new love, he grinned. A very rich boy couldn't be pleased with them, he told me. Would you like to see if they are the right fit? When he laced them around my worn and ragged feet, it felt like walking on clouds made of silk. I pinched my cheeks so hard that they turned the same shade of red. So sure was I that this must be a dream I was having still in my bed. But it wasn't a dream, and I knew that I would never let anything else touch my feet again. I could finally become Milo with the red shoes, and that was worth more than any bed or school lessons or a warm meal my new mother could give me. While she was still out shopping, I pranced over to the barber and despite his resistance, convinced him to give me a proper boy's haircut to match my new red shoes. I saw the new me in the cut glass of a shop next door. I was perfect. I never saw that old lady again. I stole an abandoned coat. It would never be fine as the one in my dreams, but I didn't need it to be anymore. The shoes were just the edge I needed to dance, to busk with the others, hoofing out a time step count for the musician for always. Okay. Um, now I'm just gonna read just a bunch of random poems. Okay, swooning for succulents. The first time I fell in love with a succulent was the first time I fell in love with a woman. She had a mess of bright orange curls, the same shade as my favorite summertime drink. By the time she introduced me to succulents, we were no longer in love, but in complicated friendship. I'd like to think that I was her most prized subject, even though I'm well aware that this was what led to our disillusion. Either she or another woman she loved to capture, a well-known belly dancer, and the round black lens, her magnified eye, gained temporary access to a house that belonged to the rich. I couldn't for the life of me tell you what they did to acquire such treasures, but I remember that the house they owned had a magnificent pool surrounded by succulent gardens framed with wood. The red-headed girl took photos of the belly dancer and me, separate and also together, nude except for the sweat that dripped down her pale skin, the sun determined to redden it by the day's end. I couldn't tell you what it was that drew me to the succulent's bulbous leaves that looked animated, or at the very least edible, soft yet durable. When I proposed to a man a few years later, I spent hours scouring the internet for succulent bouquets. I was thrilled there was such a thing but ultimately ended up going towards a small bouquet handpicked at a farm a drive distance from where we wed and more affordable. My mother had always had what she called a purple thumb, killing every growing thing in her past. She was prone to believe that every tragedy that befell her was genetic. And so even as my father's green thumb transformed our backyard into a tropical paradise, I never did buy plants, except for a grocery store orchid or two. But then when my marriage wilted slowly and all at once, and COVID kept lives out when I most needed them to be in. I drove myself to my favorite nursery and bought the succulent that asked for me to come closer. A friend offered me a cactus plant, a cactus plant and a couple of other succulents, but it was this one that decided to thrive alongside me slowly, steadily, like all of us. Um, this one is called 
In Baba's house, a pair of rain boots, the color of lemons is desire. And desire was freedom. When Baba said no, I hid underneath the bed, another sign that I was free. That image was an anomaly or an experiment, you might say, where my skin is a magnolia, defiant, and Baba's confusion, I don't understand not even raining outside, was a lie. Did not realize how many boots I had in these poems. <laughs> I must really like them. <laughs> okay, this is um, an epistolary prose poem that is written to um, Rodin the painter from Camille Claudel. If you don't know that story, I strongly urge you to look it up. Okay. Um, and the title also comes from Camille. Of the dream that is my life, this is my nightmare. Rodin, it is the mud I must cling to now, earth beneath a cracked foundation and you in its place. A memory of my youth, two girls digging in the sand for clay. We were told you could find clay if you dug in sand deep enough. Two girls digging for clay, a handful of sweat and strands of hair wet in my mouth giggling at the constellation, the grains patterned on her thigh. Suddenly and slowly, is that possible? An ant bed emptied in my lap. Your love is like this, a thousand teeth crawling their way over me, their marks just invisible enough to seem an overreaction. I'd rather drown myself in the quicksand of my dank flat than be attached to you. I love you too much, really. Or perhaps I love the bodies I form out of the earth, and hate your fingerprints like slugs eating away at their brilliance. Yes, brilliance, I said. I think I'll get my brother to buy me a gun, shoot a hole in the head of every sculpture you've destroyed with your influence. You think you've influenced them all? Alors, then at least they'll have a common thread. I'll call them Gunshy, a series of sculptures devoted to man's right of access. It is the mud I must cling to now. You and the earth I resent with my unkempt face. Yes, I know, that Claudel, she used to be so beautiful. I don't want to cling anymore. I wish the mud, oh, my precious material, which, like a paste, has turned my body into a condemned building nailed to the willow's roots, would stop this now. Enough with your foolishness, Kami. Um, okay, just have a couple left. Uh, this one's called After the Descent, and... Um, if you've seen the film, The Descent, it happens after, this happens after the movie ends. I see them everywhere, demons with beady little eyes, skin so see-through you could put your hand through it, if you dared. I see them when I wake, when I eat, when I shit on the toilet, in the bath, sitting with a latte at my favorite cafe, when I sleep or fuck. Actually, I can't sleep anymore, or fuck. Not anymore. I've learned how to perform the trappings of a regular life, in case anyone's watching. I sit at my desk and pretend to work. I make myself simple meals, small enough in case the delusions are bad enough I throw up. The friends who know, or at least have heard the story, back when I thought I could trust people with what had happened to me, text me to drink water. I follow their instructions, even though I know it will do no good. I've learned how to sit in front of company with eyes that look just relaxed enough to seem calm, just open enough to take on the look of presence. Five years in hell, you learn a little something. But the truth is that I work three jobs so that I can afford the light bill. I don't turn the lights off anymore in any room at any time. I also work so as to distract myself with mindless tasks as much as possible. I know what you're thinking, but I'm not living a flashback. I'm both in and out of the past, always, always, all at once. 
Once I loved the city, the way it buzzed around me, like fireflies flickering their little lit up worlds, but I can't do it anymore. Too many tight caverns to find yourself in, a million grates under my feet. I'm not built to be reminded of what lies beneath the ground anymore. I know too much, not just the demons feasting on whatever blood finds their way to them, but my love, the mask he wore up until the day a pipe impaled him. I'll never get over it. My friend and my love, their bodies smashing against each other. In my bed, betrayal staining the sheets I bought, holding hands at the park while my children swing into the sky. There's more than one way to descend, descend under the earth, descend into madness, descend into an endless grief, which is the dream and which is the nightmare. What is life if the only register is pain? Okay, and this is uh, my last poem, the most recent one, I think. Uh, I'm writing a series, each poem is titled Dear My Ex's Fake Therapist. And um, Timberlake is mentioned in this, trigger warning. Um, we don't like him anymore, but we like him in this poem. <laughs> okay, dear my, uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Okay, dear my ex's fake therapist. As a child of divorced parents, I did not believe in marriage. My twin and I would lie on our identical bellies, on our identical beds, and we would daydream about the weddings that we would have. We would marry twins, it would be a double wedding. We would not wear the same dress, that much we knew. We would marry men because that is all we knew we were entitled to. And then for many years, I did not believe in marriage. I still believed in weddings, but I no longer wanted anything of mine doubled. Being a twin was enough. I went to therapy where I learned that if you make of marriage what you want, if you refuse the patriarchy and all the systems placed upon the institution of marriage, it could give you what you need and desire. I married him because I believed he would thread a permanence at long last into my life. I strongly believed he would always be there, which is not to say I believed we would always be married. I thought we would always be intertwined as two individuals who sought for and believe in one another's happiness and well-being. It was December in New Mexico. The snow fell onto the ground outside, as well as the back of our favorite roaming doe, which we named Juniper, which was the name of our cabin, and also the name of a dream I was forced to terminate. As I sniffled my way through an incidental cold, I sang and danced to Timberlake. Since you came around, I've been living a different life. A sentiment that rocked me to my core so intently that I began to cry. He remained confused, still unclear what it was I was performing for. I knelt next to him where he lay on our small bed, a fire crack crackling nearby in the fireplace. I brought out a ring box in the shape of a Christmas stocking and asked if he wanted to make this next song true. I played Band of Horses Mary song. I didn't need him to say yes. I only needed to offer him my love, friendship, and commitment for as long as I could possibly imagine. Tears came to his eyes as he opened the box and saw a simple setting in the shape of a flower, like a small child might draw on a piece of paper, filled in with sapphires of every color in the order of the color wheel. It is easier to believe that the tears were a performance, that the soft underbelly of vulnerability he showed me that day was a lie. It is easier to believe he tried to will himself to be the person who could accept this call, to believe he was capable of love. Both of these statements are true. And also neither. Thank you. Damn. <laughs> Thank you so much, Addie. This is spectacular. What a treat today is. Ugh. So, so we have one poet left. 
Um, our next poet is Malfika Jolly. She is a writer and translator. Her poetry, essays, and criticism are featured or forthcoming in Chicago Magazine, Frontier Poetry, Liminal Transit Review, The Margins, Misna, Poetry Online, Poetry Northwest, Southside Weekly, and so many others. Um, very, very prolific. She curates the new Third World, which is a monthly poetry reading series inspired by the non-aligned movement. So Malvika, if you would please unmute yourself and step up, the spotlight is now on you. And thanks again, Addie, that was just moving, spectacular. Agreed, I wanna second that, that sentiment. Addie, I'm obsessed. Um, your titles in particular, like, in Baba's house, in Baba's house, a pair of lemon boot, boot the color of lemon, our desire were just phenomenal. Uh, those were really, really pleasurable and and really pleasurable to listen to like orally. Um, and Shannon, it was like so lovely getting to hear your like extremely kind of wackadoodle uh, odes to your husband's body. I, I can't imagine, like I love that we can't see him. Uh, because suddenly I feel like I would love to know more about him in the world, but that there's this veil of uh, this veil of anonymity that is so alluring and so interesting. Uh, I really appreciate that he would be true, certainly. Uh, and Sean, thank you so much for having me. This has been uh, really a delight on this kind of sleepy, low energy Sunday to be in conversation with you all. I'm going to read a handful of poems. Um, and they're all from a common series called Dream Daughters that I've been working on this past year. Uh, the premise of the series is it's pretty straightforward. Um, it's a female itinerant narrator traveling from city to city, historical cities, contemporary cities, and she's sort of awash in the ambient of the world. She's in like a post-colonial world of plenty. Um, and it's been an interesting sort of exercise in yeah, removing resistance from my life, like everything I write pours into this series and it sort of creates like a framework uh, that I build into. So I'll start off with one um, called Dream Daughter in the Ambient of the World and then we'll, we'll go from there. Dream Daughter in the Ambient of the World. Once we sought to remember past continents through dream revelation to trace the routes we took back to the shores where we were birthed now we know no country but each other. Dispersed across the ambient of the world, we are all each other's dream daughters, all each other's past, present, and future. We are the fruit fallen in the shadow of the non-fruiting tree. In this nation of dark waters, there's only us. No frontier, no chartered passage, no borderlands. We bow our heads as we pass beneath each other's auspices. We are an odd sort of commonwealth, charting poetics and labor economies. Power cuts out across the dampened city. In the dark, we dream daughters, like the moonflower blooming just once in the Englewood Alley. In the twilight desert, we dream of bougainvillea blushing on the boundary wall, old as independence. The people of this city suffer an infestation of history one for which wound and cure are the same. After the good doctors cannot cure us, we seek out the less good doctors. We are the rafts built from ancient doors to which we long ago lost the keys. 
no language but communion, no passports but the sea. So that's the first poem. All right, all right. Um, so the following poems will kind of make sense pouring out of that, or they'll feel like a soup. Uh, and this next one is called Dream Daughter in the Visiting Hours of the World. And um, this past spring, I've been reading this book called The Colonization of Time. It's part of this uh, Studies in Imperialism series. And it's kind of uh, has been really interesting to read as I sort of travel through. I was uh, in North India for most of this year and then in Bombay for a little bit and then returned to the U.S., um, and the book is sort of rich with, uh, you know, there's this kind of Walter Benjamin concept, like when the revolution comes, we first shoot the faces of the clocks. And I've always thought of that as a metaphorical impulse. Um, but this was really interesting for me to think about. This book was basically about how uh, the concept of hourly time, weekly time, rituals of time, this kind of hegemonic clock of linear time, we think of as like very evergreen, omnipresent, a part of the natural world. It's actually very much like a 19th century uh, Western European and specifically British uh, kind of imperialist technique that came along with like British, you know, military naval expansion, joint stock companies, extractive concepts of uh, rents, you know, all of the things that cause like famine and uh, deprivation like throughout the world and time and this concept of Western time, even the idea of like the minutes to the hour of the clock uh, lateness to time, how we experience it is is fairly contemporary and so could be kind of flipped and inverted and reversed. Um, so this poem is called Dream Daughter in the Visiting Hours of the World. It sort of is a little bit on these themes, but is a bit of a joke because of course the world is open all the time. Uh, there are no visiting hours, but perhaps if we call them the visiting hours, we'll show up, uh, we'll show up more promptly to the revolution. So Dream Daughter in the Visiting Hours of the World. And Junica will drop a link. Dream Daughter in the Visiting Hours of the World. She is climbing a ladder to unscrew the hands from the clock, dropping them into her breast pocket, wearing them on a scalloped silver chain, clasped in prayer across her collarbones, though they bite and leave beads of blood. She is opening a restaurant for sinners, a supper club on a decommissioned Pullman train car, a diner of meals to be eaten, standing Etsy. To make a phone call, we use a payphone, a bowl of quarters, a single washer on a long piece of string. Like a ship lost to the coursing tides, we are open all the time, no maps, no timetables. You need only echolocate to the moving target of memory to recall exactly where and when to go. She is swimming in a sacred lake with a sacred carp. She is sunbathing on the fault line between two warring continents. She is taking a nap by the side of the highway. She is pulling up the rope ladder to her heart. Tonight, she is giving out haircuts from the back of a Parsi restaurant called Britannia. She is receiving her first vaccine up in Harlem from a Haitian nurse called the same. She takes inventory from the long arms of Empire R.I.P. All the places were like a wild and mangled dog. It has shaken off its damning ink. A berry palau, a live woman. A berry palau, a live woman, a wronged continent, 
a packet of nutritional biscuits. She is playing a game of chinchon outside the electric laundromat. She's celebrating the new year with her entire family after the fever breaks. She is wearing a pendant dreamt up by her mother, a single slice of citron preserved in amber. She is traveling with a collection of tiny silver jars, everything needed for a samovar of chai, dangling from her ears, a pair of fragrant clothes. She is spending a long season of monsoon listening for sovereignty's subtle song. She is ringing you up, never and always. She isn't waiting for your call. She knows nostalgia as a navigational tool. She is looking into its face and seeing her face. All the parts once discarded like a paper skin. All the world she is seated with still. She is trying you tonight from a rooftop in Delhi where it is already tomorrow morning. She is stepping into a future swift as the ticking clock. She is walking through bedsty in a coat stitched with a map of new continents. She is heading for the visiting hours of the world. Thank you. I see there's someone in the chat with my name and that really compels me. I was wondering, I was about, wondering that about that too. Yeah, I'm like, I'm busy. So I, I know that wasn't me, but hello. This next poem is called Dream Daughter in the Besieged City. Um, and there's a bit of context. So there's a word that actually comes from Turkish. The word is sufayi. It comes from Turkish and then it bleeds and travels its way into Farsi, Urdu, Hindi, and then into English. Um, it's in British English, British colonial English, exists as the word sepoy and is kind of famous for in what in colonial history is called the sepoy mutiny of 1857 and uh, what is sort of called in the rest of the world like the first war of Indian independence. Um, so this poem is a little bit about that word and all the funny places you find it in uh, the city of New York. Um, so Dream Daughter in the Besieged City. In traditions of non-belonging, all that which is forgotten is inherited into the margins of cities. And in this spirit, she is boarding her friends onto the Angelica's streetside dumbwaiter, acting both tour guide and station agent of girlhood degeneracies telling a story about the day they built the West Side Highway over wartime ruins of London, Bristol under siege, broken schools, pubs, libraries, cinemas, scattered across the world, buried away as ballast in the hold of a ship. How each city carries the ruins of another. How a ruin is only time taking a detour and detour the name of the shores on which we built our home. She is point pointing out the movie poster her father showed her in the lobby of the cinema, La Révolte de ce pays, the American Western set in the fantasy realm of the British Raj, the last gasps of the Mughal Empire, those revolutionary days in Delhi, dubbed for some unforetold reason for post-war France. She is still there now, alone in the cinema house of counterfeit histories, scratching herself into the margins of each careless frame, making pinpricks in the film stock with the bared edge of a fingernail, a subaltern salam. She is reading to herself, in French, Hindi, Urdu, English, Farsi, Turkish, tracing with her finger how a single word floats eyes closed across the blood waters of deep language in the final hours before estrangement becomes an ethic 
distance away of looking at the world. Um, Sean, may I ask how much more, how much longer do I have? So we, we started a few minutes late, so you can go on for another five or six minutes, I would say. Okay, perfect, thank you. Uh, the time blindness runs deep. All right, so these two uh, next poems, actually, I'll just do one. And um, it's new and I haven't really read it anywhere else. Uh, so I, I don't know how it sounds out loud. And this will be my, my test run in the intimacy of this Zoom. It's called Dream Daughter in the Lion's Den. Uh, and thank you all so much. You've been just like such a fantastic kind of restorative reading. Um, okay. Dream Daughter in the Lion's Den. The daughters of our history are entering the lion's den like entering a steam bath. They are washing clean the history of touch from their bodies. They are studying the end games of empire. They are stepping off onto an ancient port where each room breathes with the lungs of the sea. They are learning to seek what all can be read from a rice field. They are wandering the forgotten waters of the archipelago with a sieve. They belong to an esteemed society of disbelievers a covenant of sisters who gather each season to scorn the invention of merchant ships, mechanical clocks, a cabal of all those who have never practiced the charting of seas. They're remembering the ocean, the origin of contracts between the living and the dead, tracing the history of continents, which is really the history of the spaces in between them. They're practicing knowing only just enough in search of that ancient shore where all that has ever been lost washes up like a sediment, a salt to be sieved, and the story begins once more. They are rehearsing daily the thousand minute choreographies of earthly departure, carrying in their coat pockets as little as they can, peeling face after face after face from their minds as they stand before the open sky. The daughters of our history are tipping over bottle after bottle of India ink, obscuring all the contracts, keeping nothing in the archives, to know the ocean as only an architecture of surrender, to remember just enough of fear, to relinquish their bodies to the night, to let the world of deep sensation blow through them like a sail. The daughters of our history know that pleasure never takes a break, to never attribute to malice what can be attributed to fear, and the less sense it makes, the more sense it makes. They are gathering in the Edward Said Lending Library. They are living in the catastrophes of old cities. They are asleep beneath the wedding veil of a red fisherman's night. They are crossing the Vermilion Sea. They are dreaming of new scarlet continents from the cabin of a steamer once used to carry exotic fruits and liquors from Merida to Maine. They are burying Magellan under a moonless night. The daughters of our history are floating with their families down the Euphrates in a black inner tube. They are washing their hair over the edge of the salt river. They are anointing each other with pinprick tattoos on their fingertips. They are forgetting to count the days from the weeks. They are letting the earth's rotation carry them all the way from Anatolia to Basra, below the river's surface, a city rising from a mountain of gold. The daughters of our history are looking into the full moon's face on this ink black night and remembering the lion's voice, the lion's face, the last time they spent an evening locked in her embrace. After a year of celibacy, they are smelling a man as they brush past him on the street. 
They are entertaining the devil and his deck of mirrored cards, asking themselves when did desire and fennel collide, and they are standing at that unanticipated precipice, the last of the Hindustani tea shops, readying their bodies for annihilation, their nightly transfigurations into a flock of a thousand birds. They are descending an elevator from the Belle Epoque, only yet another name for this time we spent here together in this room by the sea. They have found themselves once more at the mouth of the lion's den, their hands halted at the gate, recalling how once, against all instinct, they had reached into her mouth, snatched out all her teeth. At last, they are standing in a hotel by the seaside, with a beautiful man in a beautiful city. They are recalling the history of transgression in between them. They are taking two steps forward, like mounting to the gallows, the world so full of lovers, each one of them trembling. Thank you so much. Magnificent. Thank you so much, Malvika and Addie and Shannon. This reading, as you said, has been restorative. I have enjoyed this so tremendously. Uh, I'm grateful to all three of you for bringing such beautiful and powerful work today. And I just really felt that each of you kind of evoked similar moods, brash, defiant, dreamy, uh, just delightful, a true, a true honor to be able to host the three of you today. So thank you for coming. Thanks to the audience for coming. Um, the recording of this reading will be up on our YouTube channel probably sometime next week. Um, so please keep your eyes peeled. Our next second Sunday reading will be on Sunday, October 14th. I hope to see all of you there. And um, wonderful, just such a spectacular day. I appreciate all of you so much. And uh, thank you for coming. Thank you, Sean. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everybody. See you soon.